Good morning, everybody. You are listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. We are broadcasting live from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio South. And welcome back to the Tuesday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, where we are talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your producer, Ryan Pagano, joined alongside my hosts, Eddie Fitz and Dexter Schmavonian. And today we will be discussing the Texas synagogue hostage situation, Sudan's anti-coup protests, and the Texas abortion ban case. And in addition, Stefan Vincent Lankrin from the OECD Center for Educational Research and Innovation will be joining us a bit later on in the show to discuss the ongoing teacher strike taking place in France. But before we get to our first story of the day, Eddie, Dex, I know it's freezing outside, but I hope you guys are staying warm out there. And how are you guys doing today? I'm, I'm doing good. Yeah, I mean, I am. I, I I still have my coat on. I am. I'm. I'm freezing. Uh, at least it feels that way. Uh, I, I I don't know. I I think that I just wasn't ready for for how cold it was gonna be this morning. Like I I don't know. Maybe I'm not used to 2022 January weather just yet. I I mean. Cold weather is cold weather. You never really get used to it. It's always it always feels like the first time you've ever been cold in cold weather, in my opinion. Yeah, it's just like going swimming. Nah, the water's yeah. cold, and you just gotta dive in. Just take although it. cold, pretty much swimming in cold water feels good. Walking around in cold air, not so much. Not so much. Yeah, I, I don't get that. Like, what's the difference? I, 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 I don't know. Something about liquidity. Yeah, I guess. You know? uh, yes, exactly. Something about liquidity. Yeah, some along those lines. I mean, I guess it's just one of those things where you got to try to go cold turkey into that sort of <laughs> like jumping into the pool for the very first time. Exactly. I mean, I've, exactly. I've definitely been there before. I'm sure y'all have been as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I mean, I, I agree. It's got to be something with liquidity uh, that that the colder is the wind. It's got to be the wind, no? Like because like swimming in cold air or swimming in cold water can be fine, but when you get out and it's like windy, yeah, and, like that can be a little bit brutal. So I would assume that it's got something to do with the wind. Uh, like that to me is also is you you choose to go in a swimming pool while the cold air just kind of comes to you, mm, and usually when you're in cold reaction. water, it's a hot day and you're mm. cooling off. Mm. So there's that. Thank yeah, you. it's true. I mean, you can pretty much. I suppose choose your location for the most part for lack of a better term to describe it. But I mean, for the most part, it's just something really tough to get used to. I, I mean, I'm more of a summer guy myself, so <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a little biased. Hot weather all day. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about this for the next hour. We should really yeah, deep this, dive. This into, is our entire show. There's yeah, no news stories. Yeah, no no news interviews at all. Just, this. just talking about pools and liquidity. Yeah, just three meteorologists uh, talking about the cold air outside of our Hempstead studios today. Exactly. The, the delightful 31 degrees. Hour-long weather report. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I wish I could say that I am some sort of meteorologist in a way. Unfortunately, I can't necessarily say that just yet. I mean, we are all currently journalists as of right now. So anyway, with that being said, I feel like that would be a good segue point to get into our first story where this past weekend a 44-year-old gunman Malik Faisal Akram took four people hostage in a synagogue in Colleyville, Texas during Sabbath services around 10:40 a.m. local time and allowed 
excuse me, an 11-hour standoff then ensued with the authorities, during which all hostages were unharmed. A rescue team then entered the building around 9 p.m., where they fatally shot Akram. Now, luckily, no other deaths were reported. However, many are wondering why many of these instances of anti-Semitism are still occurring, especially in places of worship. And better yet, a lot of people are wondering why there's been an increase in violence and hate based on religion and what exactly can be done to combat this. I mean, personally, I just feel like it's very frustrating to see this much hate going on based off of someone's religion. And unfortunately, this isn't really a new event either as synagogue shootings and other violent acts based off of religion. They've made headlines during the past few years. And unfortunately, uh, when thinking about this, I mean, Tree of Life and Poway, those synagogue shootings, they unfortunately come to mind when thinking of this. I mean, those two were just horrible tragedies that did not need to occur at all. I mean, yeah, it's it's very lucky that nobody got harmed in this situation because these types of things, it's it's very rare that someone takes 10 people in a synagogue hostage and nobody gets hurt. So it's very good about very, that aspect is a positive, at least. But I agree that there I, I personally I don't believe in just you know, banning all guns straight up, but you shouldn't. Guys like this shouldn't be able to have, like, a machine gun. And to be honest, they shouldn't be able to have handguns. There should be much stricter regulations for getting a gun so that people who are insane can't go and hold people hostage at a church. Now, we we don't really completely know what his full motivations were. There was some, you know, obviously anti-Semitism, but... Some people say he might be connected with Al-Qaeda and wanted to get this guy out of prison. That's not confirmed, but that's one theory. He could just be mentally ill. We really don't know what's happening here. So it'll be interesting to see how this goes and unfolds. Yeah, I mean, from from what I've seen, uh, there hasn't been, um, like, any indication that that there's been greater connection like this man came in in about uh, about a month ago in December uh, he arrived legally in the US uh, he, so he passed the vetting process uh, you know British intelligence officials advised the US that a preliminary review of databases uh, showed no derogatory information about Akram um, and this to me seems like there is it's more of a question of how this person got to texas how did this person get into this position Uh, to me it's not necessarily about about the gun or about the about the situation uh, or or the fatality of the situation because if i'm being honest like i yeah, I agree with you that there needs to be like some type of common sense gun reform. But I think that you need to take away the means for violence uh, to do so. I think that like, I don't know, maybe this is not like the best example, but you know, if somebody comes here, like this person spent a couple of days in a homeless shelter, like this person has not had uh, the best 
means to success here in the United States. And definitely uh, not. Uh, yeah, I agree. That I don't know. Uh, Ryan, I'm curious as to as to hear your take on this. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's just very unfortunate uh, to see. And, you know, I know you guys were mentioning that, you know, perhaps some mental health issues were uh, coming into the full picture. And I mean, that is uh, true, as a matter of fact, a brother close to Akram has stated that he's had mental health issues uh, re- at least recently, likely because a younger sibling of his passed away around three months earlier. And Dex, also, you were I know you were mentioning about uh, potentially freeing or his motivation for pulling off the attacks was to free an Al-Qaeda operative. Now, that is um, Afia Siddiqui. Uh, right now, she is currently in a federal prison in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, serving an 86-year sentence. Uh, she was convicted of multiple felonies back in 2010, and that was actually uh, one of his demands, uh, at least when negotiating with the FBI and also other local law enforcement as well. Yeah, but he, he it's not like he's trying to break out his, like, this person... What what he says on the phone call is he says uh, that he wants to die with this person that that that, uh, that I just want a bullet in me I want to go that's it he said that in the live stream and reiterated that sentiment in two telephone conversations that got picked up he said I'm gunned up I'm ammoed up guess what I'll die uh, I'm going to die so don't cry for me um, so not a very mentally stable person no to yeah. m- like a- again like this this goes back to you know, I. It's 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 taking away the the means of of violence. Like this, yes, is is taking away a gun an aspect to doing that. Yes, but you also have to make sure that that, you know, a person forty eight hours after leaving a homeless shelter isn't going to like leave. And 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 hold people hold a synagogue and hostage, hold a synagogue yeah. hostage, right? Like, but it, how do you do that? Right, it, it comes down to, uh, it's it's just people being good people in the sense of, uh, you know, people at the shelter, um, you know, they said that they didn't notice anything different about him or that he didn't show any any signs of of distress, um, and and that could be. That could be true, uh, but also, based upon what he sounds like on the phone call, it doesn't seem to me like this break was so sudden. Like this seems like something that happens gradually over time. Oh, it definitely does. And I mean, the most unfortunate part about all of this is that there have been so many instances of anti-Semitism and all this other violence. I mean, that's continually been going up throughout the past couple of years which i mean is just very very depressing to, uh, to think about and you know it really uh comes in to question the fact that you know perhaps there should be some more gun control uh implemented especially in religious buildings as well i mean that's definitely going to ignite that debate for sure uh, yeah no absolutely i mean um there was a uh, Rabbi quoted in the article talking about how every synagogue should practice uh, Se- the security sec- classes they took. Yeah, uh, security classes or or even active shooter drills. Like there, 
it's it's a reality, right? Like it, it's one of two things: you either adapt to the society or the society changes. And, and like that was how it was after Sandy Hook for for a lot of us, right? Like I don't I don't know about you, uh, but after Sandy Hook happened, there were like major changes within my school, yeah. and then like, we started doing active shooter drills. I Doors were that. locked uh, at the start of each class. Um, it, it would you couldn't have your door open anymore. We had no more open door policy once classes were started. Um, it was, it was a major adjustment. It just didn't, it didn't, uh, didn't really set in. But we, like as a school, just adjusted to the reality. It is quite a shame that that kind of that thing is necessary in the U.S. And I do agree that just taking away guns isn't completely going to solve the problem you you know you see in in london they don't really have guns in britain but there's still a lot of violence in london with the stabbings and stuff so you i especially in the u.s with such a high populated high high populace there's gonna be people who do this type of thing whether although it may go down if you take away people's guns, it's not going to solve the problem, and we should probably get to the source of it, which is mental health and how we handle people who are violently unstable. Well, it's definitely. I, I think that uh, mental health is uh, can also be used as like a catch-all term in this sense. It's, uh, you know, there is a... Uh, what in in London, it's like a twenty eight percent, maybe twenty, yeah, twenty eight percent of people live in poverty in London compared to twenty two percent in the UK. Um, whereas, you know, there are a thirty seven million people in the US, which is higher than that percentage. Uh, in in terms of the UK, um, which is about 11.4% of our population, live below the poverty line, and half of U.S. families are classified as struggling to make, quote-unquote, ends meet. Like, yes, I think that there are... It it can be difficult to highlight the idea that somebody wants to to shoot somebody or to, to hold a synagogue hostage is to just label that person as crazy and anomaly and asterisk but like if you look at, at at what causes crime uh or what causes these acts um we can do a multiple we can attack this on on multiple different fronts where you reduce lethality through gun control or re- reduce fatality through gun control uh through poverty relief and 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 legislation you know stu- people aren't struggling in, in, in the United States. And it, 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 the minute the people's immediate needs become to be released, you know, they don't steal bread for their family. And then when they get caught stealing bread for their family, have to fight for stealing bread for their family. And, and so then you get put into this situation. Like it's a, uh, that to me is, is a difference. And then I think the gun culture in US, I think compared to, compared to the UK or, or London in terms of stabbings, like, I don't know. There's, uh, I know you're not trying to say this, but I feel like it just needs to be said. Like, there's a difference between a mass stabbing and a mass shooting. There is. Right. Oh, definitely. Right. 
for sure. I mean, it's like bringing a whole mattress uh, to a pillow fight there. Right, exactly. At least when you're comparing those two. And really, for the most part, it just seems like one of those one of these instances where on the surface, it seems like such an easy fix to just simply point out that this is perhaps a mental health issue. But in reality, it's definitely one of those things where you just have to dive deeper into the root of the cause and try to fix it like that. I mean, especially uh, with the gun culture in the United States as well, combined with the poverty rates that you were just discussing, Eddie. I mean, it's just not a good mix, in my opinion. And again, these are our opinions. They don't reflect those of WRHU Hofstra University or the Board of Trustees as well. But I mean, point being, the circumstances are just not a good mix. And it's just really unfortunate that they're sort of combining at pretty much the worst time. I mean, this is the richest country in the world, right? Like, this is this is part of it, you know? Like, I if we do not look at it with more nuance than just straight yes or no issues, yeah. then, then we're just doomed to continue to repeat the cycle and we'll just see these stories over and over again and we continue to look for something to blame uh, rather than trying to, to look at the factors to be preventative. Like, we, we are, we're too reactionary, I feel like. Yeah, you, you see a lot of pit, uh, politicians saying, you know, we're just going to get rid of guns and there won't be school shootings anymore. There won't be violence. will just be not a thing. And that's not true in the slightest. So we got to figure out how to get on a human level, how to get people to not only not just remove their means to commit violence, but also their want. Yeah, exactly. The the societal factors that that lead to violence. I think that, you know, we laughed at Governor Greg Abbott of Texas whenever he was like, whenever people asked him what what on the Texas abortion bill, which we we'll talk about later. Uh, they asked him, what about abortions for for women who have been victims of rape or sexual assault? Uh, and his response was, well, we're going to eliminate rape. Uh, but, like, how? Right. Like, <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing. Like, it's a good thing Governor Greg Abbott is anti-rape. Yeah, like, that's, mean, a, yeah. that's a positive. We're, I, we're, I'm we're, glad he's not a supporter of it. Right. That, he that, doesn't, you know, he like, wants to eliminate it. It's a, that, that's a good thing. But then you got to go from the but, want like, to the, the how. The nuance, the nuance of everything, uh, to <laughs> tying it all together. Like, I don't, like, that's sort of, to me, where, where it's at. It's, it's like, yes, oh, yeah, we should do, we should do the, the thing of eliminating rape. But, like, also, that didn't really answer the question to, to the to the main issue of of, of dealing with the reality of. Yeah, you can't sure, exactly. You can't right. just snap your fingers and boom, exactly. problem solved. Exactly, and yeah, so yeah that's humanity. Me, but there's, yeah. there's more nuance to to every situation. Is basically what I'm saying. Oh yeah, I mean a Thanos snap is not gonna <laughs> directly do that to you, and right. I mean it's just really the equivalent of identifying a problem, but without any solution and you're sort of just expecting other people to sort of pick up the slack at that point right like it's just definitely one of the one of those instances mm -hmm. and once again we will be uh discussing that texas abortion law a bit later in the show 
However, we're going to move on to our second story about the Sudan anti-coup protests. And Dex, I understand that you do have the scoop on it. So why don't you tell our audience a little more about what's going on there? Indeed, I do have that scoop. Uh, The Sudanese military shot and killed at least seven people yesterday in the nation's capital of Khartoum, where people were protesting against the military government, which was established by this past October's coup d'etat, along with those killed over 100 people were wounded by the gunfire. The military had initially shared power with civilian groups since 2019, when Omar al-Bashir was overthrown, but last October they essentially dissolved the sovereign council between civilian and military groups, and the military just took complete control, even detaining the prime minister temporarily, though he was reinstated. So this, this is serious. This, this is like, this is very bad. We, the future of Sudan and unfortunately, it's like this in a lot of Middle Eastern countries, but it's not looking good. They're seeming to be in just a revolving door of leadership. And it, it's really hard to tell because there's no clear, there's no clear solution here. You don't, it's kind of like in, um, like Libya after Muammar Gaddafi got thro- overthrown. The dictator's gone, but what do you do now? You Now it's just chaos, essentially. It's like, I'm in charge, I'm in charge. And that's what Sudan's starting to look like. Even though it is a slightly bit different situation, I feel like that's where they're headed. Oh, definitely. I mean, there really isn't any uh, question about that for sure. And I mean, it's they're really just... It's really, for the most part, uh, sort of the equivalent of a um, chicken running around with its head cut off. I mean, nobody really knows uh, what to do in that situation anymore, especially for a carousel of leadership now, so to speak. And, I mean, this will by far go down as one of the deadliest days in Khartoum's history. And, I mean, it's definitely comparable to last October's military coup as well, where so many injuries and deaths were sustained there and it's really a shame to see all these efforts to help um, help bridge the gap so to speak um, for Sudan's pro-democracy movement just fail like this with the amount of deaths and injuries going on over there yeah uh, I mean my gripe sort of is um I mean, listen, U.S. Saudi or, or U.S. Sudanese relationship has not been um, too incre- incredible over yeah. the past couple of years. You got the you got the aid package that came in the early two thousands for for South Sudan and Darfur, um, but a lot. Of, but you got a lot of sanctions, um, including the most recent one of uh, October twenty twenty when Trump took Sudan off the state sponsors of terrorism in. October 2020. So this is after they had the military coup. So the military is in charge in negotiating with Trump, and they agree to pay the U.S. $335 million for compensation over the 1998 bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Sudan. Um, and, and to me, for, for a 
country that is so pro-democracy, such as the U.S., it seems weird that that we just took money from a military government and and was just like, yep. We're not go, mad at you anymore. Go go for it. You, we are best friends now. You apologize. Money's... Yeah, and, and so to me, this. It's no surprise that there's a lack of leadership, right? Because yeah. there's no it, it. It seems to me that there has to be some. There, it's there's no moral incentive for for bigger for bigger countries to to want to get involved. It's got to be an economic incentive or, I, or a political power incentive. I will say, getting involved, powers like the U.S. and England <laughs> don't have the best track record when it comes to getting involved in, especially no Middle yeah. Eastern. It, it, you could almost argue that a major reason why things in the Middle East have been so chaotic for so long is because the U.S. and Britain and other countries have been always interfering, saying like, oh, we can, we can divide the borders like this, we can do this, we can do that, but it just makes it worse. And we really can't just march in troops or, and just fix things because we really aren't nearly as good as doing at doing that as we think. It didn't work in Iraq. It didn't work in Afghanistan. It hasn't worked ever. I can't think of a single time where we, I mean, there's World War II where we sent troops into France and Germany and stuff. But since then, but we didn't rebuild a nation. Like no, that's like that, that's the whole idea. Is like, should the U.S. be nation building? Yada yada yada. What's the U.S.'s role? But oh, then, yeah. then yet at the same time, you know, we look at like what the U.N. is doing, uh, and they're trying to bring various stakeholders, like between the military and and civilian leadership, to to try and reach some sort of s- s- consensus, oh, giving people a seat at the table. And I mean, at that point in time, you pretty much have to try to help bridge the gap between military generals and this pro-democracy movement in any way possible. And I mean, that's exactly what the UN is attempting to, uh, to do as of right now. They're uh, consulting with the Sudanese military and several other parties to help find an end to this crisis. But it's unfortunate because most of not all attempts to find an end to this have failed. Yeah, uh, it's been, it's, it's difficult because it, it comes down to a lot of like collective bargaining, like you know what I mean. Like, how how much stake does the UN have against a, a against the Sudanese uh, government that is in control of the of, of their their means? And it's the military. Uh, it's hard to to feel like unless there is swifter action from from the UN or or str- swifter sanctions or something to help cripple uh, a a cornerstone economically for the Sudanese uh, military, it will just continue to be protested to protest. To Although, protest. again, foreign powers do need to be careful and try to make, don't have the U.S. come marching in and right. try to make a Sudanese government built to support the U.S. It should be Sudanese government to support to the support, Sudanese people. Yeah. Yeah. And not the and not the Sudanese leaders either. Right. It should be. Government should work to help the people, by the people, for the people. That's exactly. A, like that's yeah. a, that's the way we see it. Yeah, I mean, it's important that you need that support system, especially in these times of crisis. Yeah. Oh, you, I, you know, you know who should come in and help? 
Canada. I feel like they never screw up. Uh, yeah. I, well, I don't know how much Canada really gets involved with a, like other I know, people like that. I think that's why. I feel like <laughs> if it was Canada doing this and not us, things would be a lot better. We'll see. I don't know why. We'll see yeah. what happens. But I mean, overall, a time of crisis going on over in Sudan. And speaking of times of crisis as well, uh, there is certainly one going on in France right now, in particular with nationwide teacher strikes Mm -hmm. that have taken place throughout the past week due to the French government's alleged mismanagement of COVID-19 protocols in schools and other educational facilities as well. And unfortunately, this isn't a new concern as plenty of teachers and parents, they've complained about these conditions for months, yet there's still little resolution to this. Nothing has really been done to attempt to mitigate this situation at all. I mean, the health protocols in these schools, they've been constantly changing, adding to all this confusion. And in fact, just this past week alone, the French government has changed these COVID rules twice for schools in the past week. So overall, a lot of confusion uh, going on with that. And here to talk more about it is senior analyst at the OECD Center for Educational Research and Innovation, Stefan Vincent Lankren. Mr. Vincent Lankren, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. Indeed, what's going on in France is a lot of changes in the protocol. Actually, the protocol has changed 19 times since the beginning of the crisis, so that uh, it makes sense because, of course, uh, you know, the virus evolves, uh, the scientific knowledge evolves, and you know, the government has to take into account the reaction of parents, but there is a fatigue among staff and teachers uh, on, you know, how to implement it. And so that's really one of the big reasons uh, why there were these strikes, you know. So a huge strike um, uh, last week and a new one, which is called, which will probably be a bit smaller than the, uh, the, the previous one on, on Thursday. But, yeah, that's really the, what's going on. And it's very much related to, you know, the, the fact that uh, the Omicron variant is much more contagious. So that, in fact, you have um, about 4% of, you know, the youngsters, people b- below 19, uh, who have been infected, uh, you know. Uh, uh, and if you look at the beginning of the crisis, we were just talking about 0.4% of, you know, this group. So that... There has been a huge amount of people who've been contact cases among the students, teachers, a lot of school closures, uh, class closures before uh, the Christmas break, um, and so a new protocol which was implemented after after the break, so which has really, you know, triggered this kind of anger from 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 teachers. Uh, another thing that you know is behind it is really um, the lack of means, you know, so that uh, uh, when you have this situation, that means that you have a lot of teachers who are absent because they are contact cases themselves, etc. Uh, and so one of the things that the teachers wanted was to have a bit more replacement staff, uh, which they got. Actually, the government had announced that it, uh, it would hire 3,300 replacement teachers uh, uh, for these cases. And also it was about, you know, the the fact that in many French schools the buildings are not so modern or well equipped, uh, and so there was all this discussion around the uh, CO2 ventilators, uh, etc. You know, and so they have actually the government here again has decided to provide a little bit more funding for that, 
uh, and also to to give um, uh, FFP2 masks to to teachers. Well, definitely for sure. So, to start a French trade unionist, he spoke on the French radio station French Info, saying that the strike was in fact not against the virus, but rather from a lack or against a lack of consultation. Now, from your perspective, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I think that it is true, you know, because when, when the... Um, so that's really very much what the, what the unions uh, say. And, and what, what's what? You have two different things, you know. One is obviously that, you know, the uh, situation is evolving all the time, which means that there have been a lot of changes, as I said, um, um, and, of course, part of those changes were not done in consultation with, with the unions. So one of the new things that uh, the minister has announced is that, no, he would have these uh, regular meetings with unions every uh, other week, uh, so that hopefully there will be better information. And, in fact, the announcement of the new protocol was then on the eve of the return to school. Uh, so, you know, that I think it was on the, the 2nd of January for the return on the 3rd. And it was done in the newspaper, so that it was really bad communication from from uh, the minister as well. You know, instead of addressing, uh, the, you know, the teachers and the staff uh, who in France are civil servants. Uh, you know, it was done through the media and just one day before the opening of schools, and so that was also one of the things that was not really appreciated by by staff. According to union leaders, their members are frustrated with the constantly changing guidelines regarding how to handle the pandemic, which begs the question, why is it that they had to change them with such frequency in the first place? Well, I think that uh, uh, one reason is that uh, uh, France and and the the French government has tried to keep the schools and classes open as much as possible, uh, which I believe and Actually, the, you know, that's also our position at the OECD, you know, that is a good thing. It's better to keep schools open if, if, if you can and to try to do so. Um, so what the consequence of that is because the situation is changing all the time, um, um, you know, and so there, there are these consultations with the, with the scientific uh, council dealing with, with uh, the crisis. Um, you know, there are different levels of diffusion of the virus, um, and of course, scientific knowledge or and opinions change, then you have to take into account the reaction of parents, etc., which is why actually it is evolving all the time. Uh, I think, you know, that what happened in during this school year is that the protocol has become a bit more relaxed, and actually that's what they've done, because it tended to be too too rigid and too demanding for parents and also for um, you know, school principals and, and, and teachers, because they were asking to have, uh, if you were a contact case, you had to do tests every other day and had two negative tests before you can, could come back. So now they've relaxed that and it's, you know, you, you just need to do it once and to have a, a sworn statement that it, it, it was good. And so, of course, you know, the, the, the staff, they don't have enough uh, capacity and help to do all that, you know, and you can imagine that because it has lasted for now, you know, one year and a half or even two years now, you know, so then people start to be tired. Uh, you know, there is a fatigue in terms of dealing with all these constraints all the time. And so that's really what makes all these new changes on top of that, uh, you know, 
you're reaching this kind of tipping point where you start where people really start being annoyed. Another thing I should add, you know, is that, and that is probably of uh, to contextualize a little bit uh, the situation is also that uh, France will have uh, its presidential election in three months. You know, so that's the other factor that you have to take into account. You know, so that there is also the uh, I would say. Uh, the, the climate becomes slightly more politicized as well, you know, and that's obviously one of the elements uh, that, that, that counts too. How much of this somewhat gets backed by, you know, according to the OECD, uh, France is somewhere around the 20s in terms of their pay for teachers and uh, in terms of their starting pay, around 7% below average for OECD countries. Uh -huh. Do, would we potentially see potentially uh, a wage bargaining uh, in terms of this second negotiations between the French government and, the, and these teacher unions? Oh, I don't think for the second one, but of course there is something which, will, which is around resources. Uh, um, you know, the, the minister has promised that there would be a raise. Uh, um, many of the candidates to the presidential election promise that teachers actually will have a wage increase as well. Uh, but you know, the thing is that, well, you know, I've been around for some time and I've seen a lot of these promises, you know, which have been materialized in, you know, sometimes increases, but which were very small and not so significant for many of, 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 of the teachers. Uh, but I think it has to do with the working conditions as well, you know, so that uh, the question is, uh, it's true that in terms of salary, the French teachers are not doing very well. Uh, you know, the working conditions are not great uh, and because of you know so that's what the teachers say is that it's not so much about it's not just about you know the the fact that there is a fatigue with the situation it's also that they've been asking for support and new resources for a while and and which have not uh, materialized quickly enough in some ways and so you know so that's uh, i know there is a i would say the government has acknowledged that you know, some of, of the constraints were too heavy uh, uh, and also have actually uh, provided additional funding to get, uh, you know, for the safety of, of staff, basically. Oh, definitely. And I mean, mainly because of the wages, it's been very tough to get a lot of these teachers back into school now in order to get them back into schools and to teach their students. Uh, what exactly would the Ministry of Education uh, in France have to do apart from perhaps simply a wage increase? Well, you know, I think that the difficulty, um, well, it depends on, on, on the subject, obviously. Um, um, but, you know, the, I think the difficulty, not just in France, but in many places, is really uh, how you manage to make the you know, teaching profession more better viewed by society, you know, so in fact, in many of the places where teachers feel well, it's really related to how they feel that uh, people look at them, you know, that's, uh, and it doesn't just have to do with salary, you know, it's really the kind of uh, prestige, the feeling of being socially valued, uh, and that's a tough one, you know, because it's not something that just the ministry can just uh, decree, you know, that it's... Uh, it has something to do, so the salary has something to do with it because obviously it says something about where you, you stand. 
but it also has to, I would say, make the the work more. I would say. Uh, Stimulating, you know, so that you can see that you can make a difference for your students, that, you know, uh, you can do things that are really interesting, that you can see that your students are succeeding. Um, and for that, you need to have means, you need to have some, uh, you know, autonomy, which, you know, French teachers tend, tend to have. You need to have professional learning opportunities that make your job uh, interesting. You need to be able to learn from other people and colleagues, you know, and, and, and when there are tough situations, you need to feel supported. I think that's really the important part, and that's probably what teachers didn't feel this time, and that's why they, they went on strike. So, after the initial walkout last Thursday, there was a second strike that took place yesterday, uh -huh. and there's no real clear signs of this coming to a definitive end. So, how long do you think this could go on? Oh, there, is, there is another one on Thursday, uh, but which actually is called for by much less unions than last time. So it is not expected that it will be as big. Uh, I think that, well, you know, so the, the way that, uh, you know, the uh, ministry got out of the strike was to make promises about, you know, uh, some, some, some budgetary commitments. And I do believe that probably... Some of the unions want to see, they want to see these things materialize, and also they want to have a better dialogue with uh, with the ministry. And you know, they may call for a few more. We'll see how you know how many people will um, do it. You know, but uh, there may be a few a few more indeed. And before we let you go today, I mean, of course, you do a lot of. Um high up work with OEC with the OECD center is there anything else uh, you would like to add regarding that or regarding this ongoing teacher strike well i think that um, well one thing i would like to say and especially when i think of you know the us context where the question of whether schools should be open closed etc is is one of you know part of the big uh, discussion is that well an easy way is to just close the school, uh, you know, and then, uh, in a sense, you know, teachers are protected. And, and, uh, but I think it's not great for, for the students. And so I think that's really something to, 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 to consider. And how, so the big question for many, and that's a tough one, you know, for governments, is if you want to keep schools as much open as possible, is how you manage to actually... Uh, give, make school safe for teachers, uh, not add to, you know, their usual workload by dealing with all the COVID-related stuff, and so probably you just need to invest a bit more, you know, so that's what now the France has realized, and, and you know, to have all this extra staff to replace teachers, but also they, they've promised to have a, a few more. In many other countries, uh, people have done the same, you know, they've called back uh, uh, um, people, f f students, uh, f f uh, um, retired teachers, like was the case, for example, in Japan, in England. And so I think that's really something to consider. How do you actually, and especially with the Omicron virus, which you know, perhaps is not 
as strong, uh, you know, as far as, you know, health, the health uh, impact uh, uh, is concerned, but which creates much more contact cases and people who are sick and so who have to self-isolate and lot, lot more staff shortages. So, ironically, this one seems to be the one that may have a, an even more disruptive effect on education systems. Uh, and so I think that's really something for auditors to keep in mind. And once again, senior analyst for the OECD Center for Educational Research and Innovation, Stefan Vincent Lankren. Mr. Vincent Lankren, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, and we hope to have you back on real soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And once again, you are listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call here on 88.7 FM WRHU. I'm your producer, Ryan Pagano, alongside my co-hosts, Eddie Fitz and Dex Schmavonian. And now we'll move on to our final story of the morning regarding the Texas abortion ban. Eddie, I know you have a lot more about this topic, so Mike is all yours. Uh, yeah, so... Dexter, I'm not even sure if you remember. I know we we did the show. We did a lot of shows over. Oh yeah, over the I remember you talking about a lot last semester. Yeah, uh, but I I talked about how I I think it was right in December, like right at the beginning of December, where I was like, pay attention to where this is going because this will eventually probably come to a decision towards the end of May or in June. And now we're getting to that next step where it it's uh, the abortion bill has reached the U.S. Circuit Court. Uh, and they have uh, alleged in a two-to-one decision to go to the Texas Supreme Court uh, instead, um, which allows for it to stay consistent and allow the law to, to, to remain in effect. Because the Texas Supreme Court's going to back it up. Right. Uh, it, yeah, so it would be um, – it, it leaves a dispute in limbo, but it allows the law to stay in effect. So, like, without it creating the – the the issue um and here is where here is where things start to develop because as this builds up uh if there is enough no's or enough changes or enough uh modifications to the bill uh then it can once it reaches the supreme court for the second time and after it deals with the mississippi bill that's when, uh, effectively, what, what some on the left call the repeal of Roe v. Wade uh, will be like will be officially in effect. Right now, it's like, yes, it's sort of in effect in terms of this Texas abortion bill uh, and some in the Mississippi with the 15 weeks. Texas is six weeks, uh, just for, for clarification. Um, and uh, that's sort of where, where we're at in terms of this situation. So... My 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 question to you guys is, um, we don't need to go through the the legal jargon of of going in between the courts, but I I, I think that um, there is a question to be had whether a a unjust law that is newly created that is being challenged in the courts, whether or not it should stand. Like in terms of like, like I get that. The, the idea of, like, passing something through the legislature should go through. But, like, this, I, I don't know, maybe it's just because it's such a contentious law that, like, you know, part of me is, like, we shouldn't have 
this thing until we can get it through the court system. Like we shouldn't. We, As in, it shouldn't be enforced. It shouldn't until be. Yeah. yeah, it shouldn't be enforced until it's until it's hashtag court approved. I I think the I think I agree there mainly because it's it's not even like a police enforced law. They expect the public to enforce it, and that basically allows people to become. It allows people to become almost like vigilantes I agree. where they're they're just like even if they don't think someone was getting an abortion or planning on it, they could just say, Oh, I don't like this guy. I'm gonna go I'm gonna say his wife got an abortion. I'm gonna say yeah. I don't like this woman, I'm gonna say she got an abortion. And they can just use it to just mess with people they don't like. And sure if once there's no evidence, there's probably not gonna be any legal charges. But still, just getting accused of a crime is a very unpleasant experience, and you can, you, you shouldn't be able, be putting your civilians in a position where they can just screw over whoever they want when they want. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just going to lead to just so many problems down the line for a lot of these civilians. And I mean, look, this law, it is very unique indeed in that. The general public will be enforcing that rather than, say, state officials or the state government. But like, it really shows the flaws. I didn't of even know law. you could pass a law like that. Well, well their voting law is very similar um, uh, in terms of their. Um, it's page like seventy-eight. I want to say because I covered it whenever I was by myself in the summer and they were th they were passing it. Uh, but on page like 78, somewhere around there, in the 70s, late 70s, high 80s, uh, individuals in Texas with this new Texas voting bill can challenge another individual's ballot. Like, so you can go to your polling place and if you and I are together, I'm gonna be like, Dexter, you're committing election fraud. But you would have to be like 80, you said? No, 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 no. I said uh, like on the bill, like in the bill, it's page oh. seventy-eight, oh, 80, I thought something like that. If I, people want to look sorry. it up, anyway. No, you're okay. <laughs> I thought it was like uh, old people. No, can no, no, no. Control. So election. I can go. So you and I are in the ballot box. I'm like Dexter, Ryan. You guys committed election fraud, and you can I just say it, and, and I could say it, and then what happens is your ballots get taken away and placed separately until, and they do not get counted, uh, and then. It is only until that uh, you two prove uh, that you have not committed election fraud uh, after uh, election day. Like, so you, your vote doesn't get casted, uh, it doesn't get counted uh, on that day. Not, and sometimes it doesn't anyway. It's just elections. But um, the the biggest thing is that you essentially can just challenge another person's ballot, and then if they don't have the legal means to be able to to stop you, then uh, you just don't get to vote. So you could basically just say, if someone votes for, like, if someone votes for the other candidate that you don't like, you just say, oh, fraud, and oh. then they're just... Well, yeah, how else are we supposed to secure the integrity of our elections? God, I love Texas. Yeah, it's true. I mean, <laughs> like, I can't think of any other ways to protect that integrity. No, that that's the most integrity, that's the most integrity way I've ever heard of. Integrity. It, exactly, exactly. Um, but no, back to abortion. Um, I, I, I want to flip it to you guys uh, about back to being able to, to push 
to push through this law to create allowing it to be in limbo so that way it's still in effect yeah i mean something about it just does not sound right i mean that's just my personal opinion about it but i mean something just sounds off about it and while this law and many others out there cite a detection of a, of a fetal heartbeat as a deadline of sorts, sorts for an abortion, usually around six weeks in a pregnancy. But it really shows the flawed logic in these, since many women aren't aware that they are pregnant until after this deadline, after being pregnant for six weeks. So you got this unfair stipulation uh, within. And even if the Supreme Court is still going to be upholding this particular law, you're going to need to clarify that cutoff date of sorts uh, in a much better manner, regardless of whether you're keeping this law around or whether or not you're just going to straight up abolish it. And that's what and that's what brings up the the Mississippi because Mississippi's 15, right? So if if Texas survives, Mississippi could go to six, and then other states can go to six. Whatever whatever comes out of this by by this time next year or in January or, or I'm sorry in uh, June and July when when the Supreme Court um, comes out with all their rulings after they're hearing these cases um, will probably be the standard for like the next I don't know how long how long ago was Roe v Wade the 70s right yeah, I think that was 72 73 72 okay. somewhere around there right uh, we're talking next 50 years uh like uh, unless unless there's a a major shift in the court system it's i mean like it's gonna have consequences like there will be and, and to your point that that women don't know that they're they're pregnant uh, in six weeks right like most women can will measure uh, a pregnancy in terms of like um miss cycles um and and six weeks that's two cycles, less than two cycles, maybe, uh, and 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 they can you can miss cycles from stress, from from dietary uh, things, so it becomes really difficult, and you're putting a lot of onus on the woman to to be able to have to constantly detect whether or not they're pregnant. Yeah, like I feel like. They shouldn't necessarily have to be monitoring that for that exact purpose. I should right? say, <laughs> like they, like oh, it's uh, I like you know, I just had a a delightful uh, evening with with somebody. Time to check if I'm pregnant for the next couple of weeks because if I if I want to get an abortion, I've got to do it sooner than later, and, and so like it's not even for the idea of trying to you know, conceive life or to, to, to do that or to, to, you know, for, for these women, it's a matter of, you know, I still want my choice. Like if I, if I want my oh. choice to do this, like then I, then I've got to be monitoring it. I don't know. I, that's sort of, that's sort of where I'm at. I, I feel like Texas is that state specifically, they're very good at getting things done. Even if it's, even if it's like not, something I support necessarily, I feel like it's kind of similar with the Republican Party as a whole, that when when they want something, they generally push a lot harder and are a lot less willing to compromise than Democrats, And which is why I think Republicans have a tendency to sometimes get the last laugh and what they want 
gets done just because they do push harder for it. So we'll see if this goes through. But Oh, definitely. And, I mean, as much trash as you do, would talk about, want to talk about Greg Abbott, I mean, you do got to give him some credit at the end of the day, especially for pushing along with all the, with several laws to get them into effect. I mean, he has definitely done uh, put in quite a lot of effort to to get the state to where he wants wants it to be for the most part. I mean, he puts in a lot of effort for that. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I I'll uh, I'll give him credit on on the effort. I'm I, like I don't know if I could give him He's, I don't know yeah. if I could give him credit because like you mentioned, very difficult to pass laws. And, and these are the law, like, I, I get that, like, you know, it's like a matter of personal opinion and it's like the, but it's like, this is the time, like, this is what you're doing. Like Ron DeSantis makes like a law about big tech and like, you know, serving school teachers. Like, meanwhile, like, you know, his, his people are, people are getting sick and, and, yeah. and there's issues and. He wants to eliminate rape and uh, like my well, good I, like hey no I don't know I I got you I I'm, I'm here I'm here no I wasn't saying like that I I I'm just saying this man does put a lot of effort into things I yeah. question why I'm surprised <laughs> yeah. that this bill was I mean I just said that I think this is gonna go through but to this point I'm kind of surprised that this specific bill in the shape it is right now was able to get this far because again they made a system where it's publicly enforced this it just feels like such a ridiculous bill just in how it's supposed to be enforced and how it's everything about it in my opinion so how it's gotten this far and how it's starting to look like it might stick really is a surprise to me because eventually it turns to a for-profit thing, right? It will turn into somebody monetizing it. Like, did you see somebody get an abortion? Call this number right here on your screen. This is the uh, this is the abortion litigating service. If uh, you know, that's we, a very Texas ad. So, like yeah. that to me. That to me. T- like, if if I'm somebody from Texas and I am against abortion and I want to do it, I I wouldn't know where to start from a legal perspective. But somebody who does, I could just say, all right, yeah, take some of the money out of my settlement. Because the person stands to gain monetarily from uh, from catching them abortions. Also, what I think, <coughs> since the main punishment is a monetary, is monetary, not, you know, necessarily prison time, the I think this might affect rich people significantly less. Because if a rich person wants an abortion, they can just go get one, and if someone sues them, they have the money. Yeah. But oh, definitely. If it's someone who's not as fortunate, they have to risk basically their livelihoods getting. The one. doctor risks jail time. The doctor. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I mean, we are out of time here, so I'll leave it off with this. I mean, we'll see where this goes to be exact, but. I mean, if it does go through, I mean, so to speak, it would definitely set an unfair precedent for other states for sure regarding that topic. That'll about do it for today's Tuesday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Thank you very much to my co-hosts, Eddie and Dex. Stay schmavi. Oh, yes, indeed. I'm your producer, Ryan Figano. Say it so long for right now. But don't you worry. The Morning Wake Up Call will be back tomorrow with Blaze Pascavage's Wednesday show. 
alongside co-hosts Abigail Carmona and Matt Rubenfield. Be sure to tune in. I'm sure you won't want to miss that. Once again, this is the Hosha Morning Wake-Up Call, only on 88.7 FM, WRHU.